2009, November 9th. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 31, The Properties of Stars. The first lecture in Unit 5, Life in the Universe. Okay, we're starting a new unit today. We've, we've, we've finished the question of life in the, in the solar system. And of course, we finished this, that section with more questions than we actually have answers to. But I think the general outline is, is pretty clear as to where we need to go looking for life in the solar system. It's a matter now of just getting out there and doing it. Um, we're now going to turn our attention out to the stars and to planets around other stars is the ultimate question. There are two main themes that we're going to be pursuing in this section of the class, which will go between now and just past Thanksgiving. The first of those is to look at the basic properties of stars and take the lessons we've used for habitability around our own sun and say around what other stars, where should I be looking for the habitable zones? Now, there's an immediate question of, well, of course, we know of the possible places for life outside the habitable zones in our solar system. But as I think will become clear, we got to look somewhere. So that's the best place to start winnowing down what is a very large problem. Then after that, we're going to go into much more speculative territory. We're going to start asking the question not just about the appearance of life, but now pick up the question of, is there intelligent life in the universe? And how would we go about finding it? What are some of the properties we expect it to have? Again. Just like the question of life in general, we have only one example ourselves. We seem to be intelligent most times. Uh, and so we'll try to use that as an example. We'll talk about things like SETI, search for extraterrestrial intelligence. We'll be talking about the Fermi paradox, the rare earth hypothesis, the question of interstellar and challenges of interstellar travel and so forth. So we'll get a little wilder and woolier as we move further and further away from our own home. But today I want to start and back up a little bit. Before we get into the question of life, we have to understand something of the properties of stars. And so the, today's lecture will be a, a very quick overview of what are the basic properties of the stars. Basically, we're going to be looking at things like the color of stars, which is an indicator of temperature. Basically, cooler stars are redder and hotter stars are blue. We'll see a little bit about how that works. We'll talk about a property that's very important to us, the luminosity, which is the total energy output from a star. We can express it in watts, although because we're talking about stars, we'll compare them to the present-day sun. So we'll often talk about luminosity in units of the solar luminosity. And we'll see today how the luminosity of a star depends upon its temperature and its radius through the luminosity-radius-temperature relationship, one of the more important relationships in astrophysics. We're going to look at the absorption spectra of stars, and we're going to find that these actually form a very distinct temperature sequence among stars and allows us a way to very cl easily classify stars into different types. These stellar spectral classes, as we call them, or spectral types, have a series of letters for the name of the star, O-B-A-F-G-K-M-L-T, a little sing-song we're going to be hearing a lot of because we're going to be looking at various types of stars through this class to see if there are reasonable places to be searching for the abodes of life. And finally, towards the end of the class, I'm going to introduce something called the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, which is a plot of the luminosity of stars versus their surface temperatures. This diagram happens to be the key to unlocking the secret of stellar structure and evolution and divides stars into the basic classes of main sequence, giants, and, 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 and white dwarfs. These divisions are going to be important to us because, again, they're going to allow us to narrow down the places we're going to be looking for life around stars that have long-term stable sources of energy for any planets that might be circling them, and also has certain implications for which stars we're going to search for planets around or can search for, are all related to the topics that we're going to be picking up today. So if we look out in the sky at night, 
you spend some time in a clear, dark place over the course of a year, to the human eye, we can see approximately 6,000 stars. And that's assuming that, you know, that's good eyesight. Um, probably my eyesight nowadays, I can probably manage about two or 3,000 over the course of an entire year. But that's just the, just the beautiful star-filled sky that you can see on any summer evening is barely skimming the surface of the total number of stars, the total number of possible places we might begin to look for for life in our own galaxy. By current accounting, the Milky Way galaxy contains something close to 200 billion stars. To put that sort of in perspective, you may remember from earlier in the quarter, that's basically the same number of Oreo cookies that have been created ever since the, the invention of the Oreo cookie. So you have one cookie per star in both the Milky Way and Andromeda. It's a number of about 400 billion. There are similarly approximately 100 billion galaxies like the Milky Way in the universe and, and, and others of different shapes. And if you put all of those together to how many galaxies we can see in the visible universe, the approximate number of stars per galaxy, it gives us a staggering number. There are 10 to the 22 stars within the volume of the visible universe. Now, the universe may be infinite in extent, but we can only see out to that distance where the light has had time to travel to us since the birth of the universe 13.5 billion years ago. So if I count up all the stars within a 13.5 billion light year radius of the Earth, I get a number like 10 to the 22. So that's where we have to search. And pretty clearly, we're going to have to narrow this down, or we're not going to get anywhere. It's the ultimate needle in a haystack problem. If we just look around us, the nearest stars, the, the local volume of space around us, and this is showing a diameter of about 30 light years sphere surrounding the Earth, we have within one light year, within a, I'm sorry, within four light years, there's only one star, the Alpha Centauri system, which is in fact a triple star system. It consists of a small red dwarf star called Proxima Centauri, and then the body of Alpha Centauri itself is a nearly sun-like star, very similar to our own. Once we expand outwards, there's sufficiently few stars that we could give names to every single one of them, and if, you could probably memorize them if you really felt like it. But very few of these, for example, only Sirius, Alpha Centauri, and Procyon, are actually visible to the naked eye. Tau Ceti is just barely visible to, and Epsilon Indi are just barely visible to a really sharp-eyed person as is Epsilon Eridani. So already within a 30 light year, roughly 30 light year diameter, I can count the number of visible stars that are within that volume on one hand with maybe, a, maybe another finger to gesture with if I got good eyes. If we expand outwards into a 100 light year bubble around the sun, I get into a place we call the solar neighborhood, and there I pick up a great deal more stars, many of the visible brightest stars in the nighttime sky, with interesting exceptions as we'll see, are within the so-called solar neighborhood. And again, we're still, you can see just from the raw numbers here, we're still looking at tens of stars to hundreds of stars within the nearby volume of the, of, of the Milky Way. So you can see that even just getting out to some place where it takes light 100 years to travel, we're still barely scratching the surface of the total contents of the Milky Way galaxy. So our goal today is going to be to look at what the properties of these stars are, and over the next couple of days, build up some intuition and ideas as to where we should be looking for life in the universe, where we should be looking, what stars we should be looking for for other planets, what stars we think will be likely abodes for the kinds of radiation conditions we think are conducive to life like our own sun. Stars like our sun are going to turn out to be, relatively speaking, somewhat uncommon compared to most other stars. 
So let's start with the basics, okay? We look up in the sky and we see stars, and the first thing we notice about the starry night sky is we can't tell distance. We don't know whether one star is closer than another star because binocular vision basically fails beyond a few few hundred meters. So we have to look at the sky, we'll see the stars as if they're all projected on a celestial sphere, and through means that we're not going to talk about in this class, I have ways of estimating the distances to stars, and I can, I can get some properties from that. But the other thing I can tell just by looking at stars is stars have colors. It's not always obvious to the eye except in certain bright examples, but in fact there are very hot blue stars like the star Rigel up in the constellation of Orion now coming up into the, into the winter sky. Some of the stars are very bright red. For example, Betelgeuse, another, the second bright star in the constellation of Orion. It has a very definite ruddy hue to it. And then, of course, our own sun. It has sort of a whitish-yellow appearance to it. It looks more yellow and more red when it gets close to the horizon, but that's just an accident of going through our atmosphere. So there's definitely a range of colors from blue through red. And, and sometimes in the telescope you can see these as well. These colors are reflective of the stellar temperature. Basically speaking, hotter stars are going to appear very blue. Cooler stars are going to appear very red. And the basic range of temperatures we're talking about is the hottest stars that we see. The ones that look blue or white blue in the sky have surface temperatures between 10 and 50,000 degrees Kelvin. They emit primarily blue light, hence their color. The reddest stars that we can see by eye are coming in around 3,000 degrees Kelvin. They're the ones that like Betelgeuse, Aldebaran, Arcturus. These are all very, very cool stars. And then stars like our sun, which appear sort of, for lack of a better word, we'll call medium hot, appear kind of yellowish white to the eye. Those have temperatures around 6,000 degrees Kelvin. Our own sun is 5778 Kelvin. It's measured in fairly high precision. Most other stars, the temperatures are known to a few tens of degrees of Kelvin. So this gives you the first feeling that there's a difference among stars as they differ in their surface temperatures from very, very hot to very, very cool. And the range is about a factor of, of um, a few, te few tens between 3,000 Kelvin and 50,000 degrees Kelvin. I think the lowest temperature star star that anyone has gotten out there is around 2,500 degrees Kelvin. The very hottest star stars that people have seen are up around 60,000, 80,000 degrees Kelvin. But most of them sit in sort of this middle range. The other property of a star that we would like to know, in addition to its temperature, is its total luminosity. Luminosity of a star, which we call capital L, is going to be a measure of the total energy output of a star. The way to think about luminosity is it's the intrinsic brightness of the star, how bright it really is no matter what its distance is from us, how much energy it's pouring out. You can imagine somewhere like on the top of a light bulb, you see the words 100 watts, GE or somebody. Every single star has imprinted on it, or at least certainly imprinted in the light coming from it, how much total power in watts is actually pouring off of that. For total power output, we always use the, the metric unit of watt, which you're all familiar with. A watt is basically a joule of energy emitted per second. But the problem is, if we talk about something like a typical star, and we'll take the sun to be typical for this example, the total power output of the sun every second is 3.486 times 10 to the 26 watts. That's a huge number. And pretty clearly, if we're going to be talking about the brightnesses of stars, carrying those numbers around in watts is going to be very inconvenient to us. So what we're going to do is the same trick we've been doing all along. When the numbers get big, rescale and basically adopt as our unit of measurement for the brightnesses of stars the luminosity of the present-day sun. 
In other words, 3.486 times 10 to the 26 watts. So I won't be speaking of the luminosity of a star as so many watts, but I'll be talking about it as so many solar luminosities. And when I do that, I find that in the nearby stars out in the universe, there's a very large range of luminosities. It ranges over nearly a factor of 10 to the 10, a factor of 10 billion, from about 10 to the minus 4 L sun up to about 10 to the 6 L sun. So there are stars that are one ten thousand at the brightness of the sun and stars that are a million times brighter than the sun. There are rare examples that go outside of this range, but this is the basic range of, of, of total luminosity that we get. So we're going to be expressing everything. We're going to rescale everything in terms of L sun. And we'll even say it that way, L sun, the luminosity of the present day sun. Now, beware. This gets very confusing because at some point we're going to want to talk about the brightness of our sun at different times in its life. And the sun is in fact fainter in the past and brighter in the future. And so I say, well, what do you mean by L over L sun? We always mean L over present day sun, what I go out and measure today. So when I go, for example, a billion or two billion years in the Earth's future and the sun is 10% brighter, 40% brighter, I'll talk about it being 1.4 L sun. That seems kind of strange to be talking about the sun brighter than itself, but remember we're talking present day sun. Once you get that time dependence worked out, all the rest of it's just gravy. Now this is, of course, the number we want. We want to know the total power output. Am I looking at a 100 watt light bulb or a, or a bazillion watt light bulb? Instead, unfortunately, we don't measure luminosity. What we measure is apparent brightness. How bright it appears to our eyes or to our telescopes from the position of the Earth. And as you may recall from previous lectures, the apparent brightness of an object, B, depends upon its total power output, its luminosity, divided by 1 over the distance squared. And I've written the full geometric form of the equation here. The brightness of an object, any object emitting luminosity L, is L over 4 pi d squared, where d is the distance to that light source. The basic heuristic here is that the further you get from a star, the brightness falls off as 1 over the distance squared. So if I go two times further away, the brightness, apparent brightness drops by 2 squared, or a factor of 4. If I go three times closer, the star's apparent brightness gets 3 squared, or 9 times brighter. So how much of that L is the total energy pouring out in all directions? B is that fraction of that energy I actually intercept, either with my eye or my telescope, or in the case of warming a planet, it's that fraction of the energy I intercept with my planet and use it to warm. So very clearly, I have to, to measure the luminosity, I have to know how far away the star is. Because I measure B, I have some measurement of the distance, and I combine those together to estimate my luminosity. So we're going to be slinging stellar luminosities around left and right for this section. But do bear in mind that in order to measure stellar luminosities with any kind of precision, we have to know the distances to stars. And that's actually a big challenge. But we're going to ignore the details of that challenge of measuring stellar distances in this class. If you really want to learn about that, take Astronomy 162. We spend a lot of time talking about that because it's so important to making the measurement. But here we're just going to take the distances and luminosities as given. We're going to be trying as best we can to work with a well-defined population. Now this luminosity, this total brightness, is not just simply a number all by itself in isolation. It depends upon two basic properties of the star, which also can in principle be measured. Now, 
Because the stars are hot, dense balls of gas, they behave spectrally like something known physically as a black body. Basically, a hot object characterized by a single temperature. And that spectrum emitted by a hot, dense solid or hot, dense gas with a single thermodynamic temperature T emits a continuous spectrum, a wash of light, an uninterrupted light at all colors. The amount of energy at all wavelengths emitted by an object, a black body, with a temperature T is given by something called the Stefan-Boltzmann law. Stefan-Boltzmann law expresses the energy per second per unit area coming off an object with temperature T, and the energy per second per area scales like temperature to the fourth power, where the little sigma there, the Greek character, is just basically a physical constant which sets the scaling between temperature and energy per second per area. It's a number we don't care about because we're always going to measure stars relative to the sun and so it will divide out. This is why ratios are your friend. They get rid of all those four pi's and sigmas you can never remember and sticks with the things that matter, the temperature and the radius. So this is the energy per second per area of the surface of the star emitted. But then I have to, to get the total energy per second, the total luminosity, I have to multiply by the area. Stars are, to a first approximation, spheres. So the surface area of a sphere is 4 pi times the radius squared. So if I've got energy per second per area, and I want energy per second, I multiply by area, and energy per second is luminosity. So the luminosity of a star L is equal to 4 pi times its radius squared times sigma t to the fourth. We can ignore the 4 pi and the sigma here. The important pieces are the radius and the temperature. This tells us two important things. Bigger stars of a given temperature. So I got two stars, both of them 5,000 degrees Kelvin. The bigger star is going to be more luminous, like the square of its radius. So two stars the same temperature, one two times bigger than the other. The bigger star will be two squared or four times more luminous, four times more power coming out. The same temperature tells me I have the same amount of energy coming out per square centimeter or per square meter of the surface. A physically larger star has more square meters of surface to emit. And not surprisingly, it emits more, it has more luminosity, more total power added up in all directions. The other side of that is take two stars of the same radius. Say both of them are 100,000 kilometers in radius, but one is two times hotter than the other. The hotter star is the more luminous star of the two by the temperature to the fourth power. It's this temperature to the fourth power part that plays the biggest role in giving us the very large range of stellar luminosities. Remember, stellar luminosities range from about 10 to the minus 4 to 10 to the 6 times the luminosity of the sun. What we're going to find is there's a relatively large range of radius, but even over the modest range of temperature differences, it's only about a factor of 10 in round numbers of temperature difference, but it's 10 raised to the fourth power. So we get a factor of 10,000 range alone just for the differences in temperature. So bigger stars of a given temperature are more luminous. Hotter stars of a given radius are more luminous. These are all important pieces. This luminous, luminosity, radius, temperature relation is one of the keys we can use to figuring out what the radiation of environment of a star is going to be like when we start considering what planets might be around it. So it's a very important series of properties. We're not measuring these different quantities in isolation. They're all related together, intimately together, in dealing with the structure of these stars. So that's just dealing with sort of general properties. The color, 
and the total brightness. But now let's start digging down and looking at some details. If I take the light of the star and instead of just sort of looking at it and saying, ooh, it's kind of red and bright, and instead pass it through a device called a spectrograph, which basically spreads the light into its rainbow of colors from ultraviolet to near infrared, and look at the distribution of brightnesses as a function of wavelength, the function of photon energy, I get something called a spectrum. Normally, a spectrum of a hot black body would be just a perfect rainbow wash of colors. If it's a hot black body, it will be more blue. If it's a cold black body, it will be more red. So this is pretty obviously a blue star. It's in fact it's the star Vega in the uh, nighttime sky in the summer sky. It's got a temperature of around 10,000 degrees Kelvin. Not surprisingly, the peak of intensity out here is kind of in blue light, around 4,000 angstroms of wavelength, and it falls off towards the red. But in detail, the spectrum is actually not a continuous wash of color, but is broken up by these dark absorption lines. We see basically take the spectrum of the star and we smear it vertically up and down to make these lines apparent. And we see, in fact, there are these very, very strong dips in the spectrum at very specific wavelengths. In fact, if I look carefully, what I will find is in the spectrum of Vega here, the very strongest lines in the visible part of the spectrum correspond to absorption from hydrogen in the atmosphere of that star. Remember, the spectrum of the star that we're looking at is going to turn out to be the hot interior emitting a continuous spectrum, and then you're looking at the hot atmosphere of the star, the outer gaseous layers that sit on top of it. So what I get in the spectrum of a star is I get a continuous spectrum, which is related to its temperature, in this case blue, and other stars might be red, and then superimposed on top of that continuous spectrum is this absorption line spectrum that depends upon all the gases that are in the outer atmosphere of the star. Now, this may seem like a detail, but it turns out there's a tremendous amount of information hiding in this spectrum. I can tell a lot of things from the spectrum of a star, how fast it's moving towards or away from me. I can get an idea of what elements compose the star. I get all kinds of information I can derive from this. But here we're going to go after one particular piece of information. Now, people took the spectrum of stars for a long time, put them together, they started recording them on photographic plates, and the Harvard College group especially took spectra of thousands upon thousands of stars and began to order them by the strength of their hydrogen lines, from the strongest hydrogen lines to the weakest. And they gave them a pretty simple-minded classification, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, in order of decreasing intensity, decreasing darkness of the hydrogen lines. And they were going through this exercise trying to understand why stellar spectra were the way they were, bearing in mind in 1901 they did not have an atomic theory of gases. They did not have a detailed theory of stellar structure. This was purely an empirical exercise. One of the women who worked at the Harvard College Observatory, who was hired as a computer in the same way that we build a PC today, you hired people, usually faculty wives or un unmarried women who needed something to do, and they were mathematically trained, but in 1900, women didn't get jobs that men did, so they could actually hire themselves out as calculators. Literally, they'd give, you, give them mathematical problems and have them solve things by hand. Today, we use computer, electronic computers to do that. And so Annie Jump Cannon was one of these computers for the Harvard College Observatory. And she eventually moved on to the photographic work <coughs> of classifying stars from the various spectroscopic studies being carried out by Edward Pickering and others at Harvard College Observatory. Now, they were busy classifying stars A, B, C, D, E, but what, 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 what Cannon saw right away was that that ordering was missing something deeper. 
that she noticed there was a very strong correlation between different of these ABC classes and the temperature of a star, and realized right away there was a deep connection between the spectrum of a star and its underlying temperature. So she took the Harvard scheme, threw most of the ABC classifications out as redundant, and reordered them in order of hottest to coolest, and found that the entire alphabet of classifications could be vastly simplified as O, B, A, F, G, K, and M, from the hottest O stars to the coolest M stars. This was a tremendous advance in our understanding of stellar spectra, because what Cannon showed very clearly was all the differences of spectra that we were seeing had only primarily to do with differences in the temperatures of the stars. And if you could measure the characteristic sets of spectral lines in a star, you could measure its temperature more or less directly. It was a very great insight, and in fact proved to be one of the real keys to starting to unlock the secrets of stellar structure in the early 20th century. And that's why Cannon is, is still praised as one of, the, one of the real great astronomers of the, uh, of the 20th century. Now, later discoveries of very, very cool, very, very faint stars had to wait until the advances in infrared technology in the 1990s added two more classifications onto the end of the Harvard class. So the Harvard class stood for almost 100 years before there were additions to it of the LNT classes. Here's a picture of what Cannon basically saw. This is now taking a series of spectra from blue to red, and you can see the dark absorption lines and bands running through these spectra from blue to red here. And now they're ordered in Cannon's order, O, B, A, F, G, K, and M. And you can see how certain lines are faint, grow in strength, and then fade in strength, but other lines pick up the slack. Some of these lines are lines of hydrogen. In fact, in particular, there's a line of hydrogen there and a line of hydrogen. There's one line of hydrogen up here in the red, but it's hard to see in this picture. Some of these fainter lines, like these three lines here, turn out to be lines of magnesium. So in an O star, the line, B stars and A stars, the lines of hydrogen are strong, but magnesium is very weak. When you get to G, the hydrogen lines are weak, but the magnesium lines become strong. Without going into the details, different lines will come in and out of the spectrum as the temperature varies. Because what the spectrum is measuring is not just the composition of the gas, which is about the same to a first approximation, but in fact the state of excitation of the atoms giving rise to that spectrum. And what Cannon noticed, again, without any reference whatsoever to an atomic theory which didn't exist at this time, she recognized the fundamental characterization of different elements. She basically saw the patterning of changes in excitation with temperature and found that when she ordered by these apparent sequences of spectral line strengths, what dropped out was a sequence of temperature. So the stellar spectral sequence is a temperature sequence, from the hottest O stars to the coolest M stars in the classic Harvard classification. So again, to, to emphasize this, the spectral sequence that we see for stars is a temperature sequence from hottest O up to the coolest L stars. So we're going to add L stars in here because they're actually important to our tale. So I've got a series of computer models here which show you what those colors actually look like now in their true spectral way of dealing with it. O, B, A, F, G, K, and L from the hottest stars. The O stars are up around 50,000 degrees. The coolest L stars can get down now to about 1,300 degrees Kelvin, which is you know, giving you a really deep red. We also see in color they go from the bluest to the reddest, left to right. So the original classification was to go from blue to red, left to right, really sort of ended up making these things 
as backwards with respect to temperature. Astronomers love doing this. We love doing things backwards for some reason. And temperature is one of those you're just going to have to get used to. We're always going to plot hot on the left and cool on the right. It's just tradition. We just do it. Now, it turns out that what spectrum you get out of a star, why this worked, depends upon the state of excitation and ionization of the gas. How you strip the electrons off atoms or not, how those electrons are bouncing around inside the atoms gives you this characteristic spectrum of the star. And that depends to a first approximation only on the temperature. Composition, whether you have more iron or more magnesium relative to hydrogen or not, turns out to be a second order effect. And it turns out to be surprisingly subtle until you start getting into stars with extreme lack of metals. So whenever we see differences in the spectra of stars, that is first and foremost due to differences in temperature. This is very powerful because it gives us a way of straightforward and accurately calculating the surface temperatures of stars from their spectrum. It becomes independent of all the luminosity radius temperature relationships because it's really hard to measure stellar radii. Stars are really tiny. They're really far away. It's hard to measure distances. But the spectrum is the spectrum, no matter how far away the star is. Whether the star is orbiting next to you, like the sun, or whether that star is all the way across the visible universe. If you can get a good spectrum, you can get its temperature, even if you know nothing else about the star. It's a very powerful set of insights that any canon gave us. So if we back up a little bit and say, what are the basic properties, what are the ranges of properties of stars that matter to us? It turns out that we've already talked about three of them. Total stellar luminosity, total power output. It's got a very large range from about one ten thousandth of the luminosity of the sun to about a million luminosities of the sun. The range of stellar temperatures are relatively modest from about 2,000, 1,500 degrees Kelvin up to about 50,000 50, degrees Kelvin, a little over a factor of 20 or 30. There turns out to be a very large range of radii. We haven't talked in this class about how we measure stellar radii. It's tough, but we have various ways of doing it. And there's a range of about 100,000, between about 10 to the minus 2 times the radius of the sun up to 1,000 solar radii. Again, you'll notice the use of the sun as the measure of luminosities and radii. For reference, 1 100th the radius of the sun is about the radius of the Earth. So that's a way to keep sort of what the scale is. The smallest things that we recognize as stars are roughly the size of the Earth in terms of radius, up to a thousand times the radius of the sun. These are things that actually would fill the solar system out to the orbit of Jupiter. And finally, stellar masses. It's hard to measure stellar masses. We can only do it when the stars are in binary stars where we can measure their orbital parameters. That's a detail as far as this class is concerned. But there's a fairly wide range from about 8% the mass of the sun, which is the smallest thing that actually is a, an honest-to-goodness star, up to about 50 times the mass of the sun, with some very rare stars that get up to about 100 or more times the mass of the sun. I believe the current all-time winner for the largest star in the universe is around two or 300 times the mass of the sun. Really hard to know if that's right or not. A lot of stars that turned out to be the most massive star in the universe on close examination turned out to be actually pairs of stars. They were about half the mass each. So there's a fairly large range, but most of the stars we're going to be concerned with range from a little under a tenth the mass of the sun up to about 50 times the mass of the sun. So those are the basic range of properties we're dealing with here on the properties of stars. <coughs> now, 
Just looked at this way, it looks like all these properties are somewhat indistinct from each other, although we've already shown that luminosity, temperature, and radius are all linked together through the luminosity-radius temperature relationship. That stars are approximately black bodies, and their total luminosity is the product of their surface areas, which is radius squared, times the energy per surface, which is temperature to the fourth power. Mass seems to be standing alone, but as we're going to see in subsequent lectures, mass actually also plays a role in the relationships of stars, but it isn't obvious until we go through one more step. So, so far, again, we're talking about the observed properties of stars. We haven't applied much astrophysics here. Few explanations, but all of this is empirical. All of these are things we can observe. One of the other keys to unlocking the secret of stars, in addition to Annie Cannon's work and the other people at Harvard putting together the spectral classification system, was a recognition that stars don't have any combination of luminosity, temperature, and radius that they want. They actually come in certain distinct patterns of luminosity and temperature. This was discovered at the early part of the 20th century independently by two astronomers, Elnar Hertzsprung, who was working in Denmark, and the great American astronomer of the early 20th century, Henry Norris Russell. They found that if they plotted the temperature of a star along the horizontal axis uh, uh, and plotted the luminosity on the vertical axis, stars didn't just scatter on the diagram. They fell on very specific loci, very specific regions that they populated, and there were large portions of the diagram where there is no combination of temperature and luminosity where we find stars. So there's a pattern here. Stars have very specific combinations of luminosity, temperature, and radius. And this was a key to understanding the physics of how stars actually work. It's a very powerful diagram. It's called the Hertzsprung-Russell, or HR diagram. It plots luminosity versus temperature. It has a number of key features that we're going to talk about. Now, in, a, in an Astro 162 class, we spend a week on all, of these, on all of these properties and their lessons for us. But today, we're just going to blow right through all of that material and go right to the results. The first thing we're going to do is we take this diagram. We notice that the most prominent feature in this Hertzsprung-Russell diagram is this diagonal band that runs through most of the diagram and in the local universe contains something like 85% of all the stars in the local solar neighborhood. So what we've plotted on this picture here is the temperature from hot to cool, left to right, on the x-axis, and on the vertical axis from dim, very low luminosity stars to bright, very high luminosity stars. And the range here is quite large. The range here is a factor of 100, 10,000, um, a million, and 10 million. So there's a huge range here. It's a factor of over 10 million in luminosity going from the dimmest, the brightest star in this diagram, and a range in temperature goes from approximately 50,000 degrees Kelvin here on the hot side to about 2,500 degrees Kelvin on the cool side. This is all the stars in that local solar neighborhood that we talked about. And we can see that the, most of the stars, 85%, lie on this diagonal band which is called traditionally the main sequence. It's the sequence of luminosity and temperature. And it works in the direction that hot stars tend to be very, very bright. Cool stars on the main sequence tend to be very, very low luminosity. Quite a bit more, in fact, than you would expect from the luminosity-radius-temperature relationship. And that's because in addition to having nearly seven, I'm sorry, eight powers of 10 in luminosity, they also range over, um, 
nearly two orders of magnitude in radius. And when you're squaring one and taking the other to the fourth power, that's what gives you this very large range of radius, a range of luminosity and temperature combination. The sun is right there, this yellow spot right in the middle of the diagram. The sun is a main sequence star. So we are the same basic, we belong to the same basic spectral sequence, the sequence of luminosity and temperature that 85% of the stars nearby us do. So not surprisingly, there's something special about the main sequence. And what that is, we're going to save for talking about tomorrow. So the first thing we notice, again, is this main sequence. It's basically 85% of nearby stars, and this is a very prominent diagonal band in the HR diagram. Some special's going on here. Off the main sequence, we notice there are two sequences of stars that are much more luminous than main sequence stars of the same temperature. So your horizontal position in this diagram, make, make a vertical line, go through the diagram here, everything along that vertical line has exactly the same temperature. Now we know from the luminosity radius temperature relationship that if two stars have different luminosities but same temperature, the more luminous star must be physically larger, larger radius. So if I pick stars sort of down in here, these are kind of spectral type K, then I see that there are K main sequence stars, and then there's a huge leap to K giants and then K supergiants. And the name giant and supergiant reflects the fact that they are physically larger stars. For example, giants range in size from 10 to 100 times the radius of the sun, with 1,000 to 100,000 times the luminosity of the sun. The supergiants are at the very top of the top of the HR diagram. They can be as much as 1,000 times the radius of the sun. These things would fill out to the orbit of Jupiter, and they could have luminosities of 100,000 to a million times the luminosity of the sun or more. So these are truly supergiant. They really are gigantically huge stars in radius at, for their given temperature. They have gigantic luminosities. And then there's this whole sequence of giant stars. What you'll notice, however, is there's a huge gap down here in this portion of the diagram between the main sequence and the giants. There's simply nothing in there. There turns out the way stars work, there's no way for a star to get in there. There's no combination of luminosity, radius, temperature, mass, whatever, that will push a star down into this part of the diagram. You either are on the main sequence, you're transitioning into a giant, or if you're a very massive star, as it turns out, a very big star, you transition into a supergiant. Buried in this patterning of dots on this diagram is the entire secret to the physics of stars. Not only how they work now, but the secret to how they evolve, how they, after they form, how they will live out their lives, and how they will end those lives, is buried inside this diagram. This is, this is probably one of the most single most important diagrams in all of astrophysics for understanding stars. For us, it will suffice today to understand that we're recognizing that these are giants, these are supergiants, and these are all sort of smallish stars by comparison in size. Now, there's one other group which will turn out to be important to us. These are very, very dim, but very, very hot stars that fall all the way off the main sequence and certainly fall away from the giants and supergiants. Again, remember the relationship vertically in this diagram. At a given constant temperature, dimmer objects are physically smaller. So we have stars here that are maybe have temperatures of 10, 15, 20, 30,000 degrees Kelvin. 
Yet they're teeny tiny faint things. They're fainter than some of these cool M stars over here to the right. If you take the luminosity radius temperature relationship and you take the luminosity of one of these things and you measure its size for its temperature, you come up with a surprising number. It's 1 100th the radius of the sun. That's the size of the Earth. So this is a star which has a temperature of maybe 20, 30, 40,000 degrees Kelvin, but it's the size of the Earth. These turn out to be extremely unusual objects because they're white hot and really tiny. They are referred to as white dwarfs. And they actually really are dwarf stars. Turns out these are unusual objects. They're not really stars at all. A white dwarf is, in fact, the remnant of a star. If you want to know what the sun is going to look like in about six, seven billion years, you know, maybe more like eight billion years, it's going to be a white dwarf. These turn out to be the endpoints of the evolution of stars like the sun, as we're going to see play out over the next couple of lectures. So those are the basic types of stars. The HR diagram tells us right away that stars are divided up into four basic groups. Main sequence stars, giants, supergiants, and white dwarfs. Well, of course, you can't, astronomers can never leave well enough alone. So in fact, we've defined a series of luminosity classes. And given them just to keep things mixed up, we've given them Roman numerals in basically decreasing order of size. The biggest stars are called the supergiants. They're type 1A and 1B. This has to do with whether you're at the bright end of the supergiant or the not quite so bright end of the supergiant scale. Bright giants are kind of between the supergiant stars. Type uh, class Roman numeral 3 are most of those giant stars that we talked about. Type 4 are these kind of in-between objects called subgiants. And finally, the main sequence, and perhaps one of the most confusing pieces of astronomy nomenclature are called dwarfs. So we go from dwarf to subgiant to giant to bright giant to supergiant. It's kind of an odd nomenclature, but you'll get used to it after a little while. The point is that, in fact, most of the stars are actually dwarf stars. They're the smaller stars. So normal means being a dwarf in the stellar world for whatever reason. The white dwarfs are given their own separate sequence down below the main sequence. They really do stand out as very different from this sequence of stars. So to classify a star, to give it its full type, I need two pieces of information. The first is I need its surface temperature. Its temperature sets where it lands on the horizontal axis of the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram, O, B, A, F, G, K, M, and then L's off this diagram. So I could talk about a type O or a type G star or a type M star. That's a statement about its temperature, but nothing else. Just a statement of its temperature. So G stars, for example, could include certain faint white dwarfs, G dwarfs, G main sequence stars, G subgiants, G giants, all the way up to G supergiants. O, B, A, F, G, K, M is just a statement about temperature. I then have to make an additional piece of classification to add the luminosity class to tell me whether I'm a white dwarf, a main sequence star, or a supergiant. I'll give you some examples. Take that diagram and erase the lines here. The sun. The sun is right here in the middle of the diagram. It's a G2 star, class 5. So it's a G2 dwarf. The number 2 is simply a subdivision among OBAFGKM. They take each group, OBAFG, each letter group, and subdivide it from 0 to 9. 
That's just a detail. So that means it's kind of in the high temperature end of the G-type, and it is a dwarf. It's on or very near the main sequence. Betelgeuse, that bright red star up in the constellation of Orion, turns out to be an M2 star. It's a cool red star, M type M2, and it is a supergiant. It's a type Roman numeral 1b. So it's, a, it's an M2 supergiant is the way you would read this. Rigel, the bright blue star in the constellation of Orion, turns out to be a B-type supergiant. It's a very hot star. It's B8, so it's at the cooler end of the B sequence, and it is a bright supergiant. It's up here in the 1A class. Sirius, the dog star, is an A star, so it's hotter than the sun. It appears blue in the sky, and in fact, it is a main sequence star. So it is an A1 Roman numeral 5, an A1 dwarf or an A1 main sequence star. Aldebaran, a bright blue star in the constellation of Taurus, is a K star, so it's a much cooler star than the sun, but it is a giant star, so it gets the luminosity classification Roman numeral 3, so it's a K5 giant or a K5 3 star. And finally, we need to throw a white dwarf in there just to mix things up. Sirius, the bright dog star, is in fact a binary star. It has a white dwarf companion, a little bit off the, main, the white dwarf sequence, but it's over here. It's very, very bright, very, very hot, but very, very faint. It's like less than a hundredth of the luminosity of the sun, but very, because it's so very, very tiny, even though it's very hot by comparison to the sun. So it tells you it's much, much smaller by comparison. So let's put these. These are where these different types of stars land on the HR diagram. If we put them next to each other in physical size, you can get some idea of the range. Here's the sun up here, drawn to scale, Sirius, an A dwarf star. So you do get slightly bigger as you go up the main sequence from cooler to hotter stars. Giant stars, giant Aldebaran, really does earn its name giant. Rigel is a supergiant, and Betelgeuse is a cool, very big supergiant. In fact, it's so big, I can't even fit it onto the graph. If I scaled Betelgeuse down so that you could actually see it as a circle on this plot, You'd be able to see Rigel and Aldebaran, but the pixels aren't big enough to represent the Sun or Sirius. And then to bring it one extra level, where's Sirius B? Well, Sirius B in scale, I have to shrink down to the scale of the Earth. So here's a model, just a picture, computer rendering of Sirius B. It's got the mass of the Sun, but it's physically smaller in radius than the Earth. This is a very, very unusual star. So this represents, going back to that picture, the range of stars that we have in the, in, the, in the universe around us. The next piece is to take these observed properties and say, how do they work? What is the physics behind stars? How do they live out their lives? And how do they die? And that will be the subject of the next two lectures.